go ahead and, and take a seat. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're new with us, my name is Landon, and I'm the, the pastor here at Restoration Church. I was uh, sharing with our last gathering. My voice is all funky because I'm a little bit sick. And there's this difference when you can't sing. I kept wanting to sing in the last gathering, and I would just cough when I sang, so I didn't. But there's, there's this moment where we recognize what we're doing on a Sunday morning as we gather is participating with each other. This isn't something that, that you come or I come to and we consume and we just watch or observe. But the power in it, the beauty in it, is when we're actually participating together. There was this moment, maybe I've never paid attention to before, where I recognized when I couldn't participate and allow my voice to join yours as we proclaim the truths about our God together, it felt like I was missing out. There's something good and whole and right about this power of joining together our voices to sing. And so it's, it's good to be with you. If you're uh, new this morning, I'd love the opportunity to, to meet you. You probably don't want to meet me today, so you could come back next week and meet me then. Uh, or not, you might not want to do that either. Uh, but there's these Get Connected cars in the seat in front of you. would love for you to, to fill one out and for Nate or I. Nate's healthier so he can get to know you uh, today or, or this week. A couple announcements before we dive into our message this morning. Actually, just one. We're going to be having a worship gathering, uh, a worship night and prayer night Thursday, March 5th. So that's this upcoming Thursday in this room. It'll be fun to have everybody from both of our, our normal Sunday morning gatherings together at one time. Uh, in the, the midst of the week, in the middle of the week, which is different. And, and I think there's something good about that. As we're in the middle of journeying through the grind of each week, we're going to stop and, and pause and take a deep breath to gather, to join together, to worship and song, and also to, to seek the Lord in prayer for the sake of our, our families, for the sake of uh, our schools, our businesses in the city. So we'd love to have you join us Thursday night at 6 p.m., uh, it'll, be, it'll be good. It was really uh, a beautiful time last time, so we're looking forward to, to sharing that with you again. With that said, this is like the fourth time, I think, in the new year since we started this new series that I have to confess that I keep lying to you unintentionally. Initially, this was going to be like a three-week series, and I think we're on like week six or seven now, so sorry about that. <clears throat> I really do believe, I told you last week this would be the last, last Sunday was supposed to be the last sermon in this series but we have one more. I believe this will be the final one. Th throughout the series, we've talked about three different things as we've discussed vision, kind of out of the Great Commission. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Therefore, because I've been made king, because all authority in heaven and on earth is mine, go and make disciples. And then he defines what a disciple is. The first thing he says is baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when we hear baptize, you might be thinking like, dunk into a tank and do this thing on a Sunday, which it means that. But I actually think that's only a part of what it means. Really, bat getting baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit means being immersed, overwhelmed by, covered in, totally have your, your, your body, every part of you wrapped in the arms of who God is. When Jesus says, be baptized in Father, Son, and Spirit, it means know God. A disciple is someone who knows our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we've been presented with this God in such a way that we're overwhelmed by his character, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his justice, his graciousness and, and, and mercy, and we begin to go, he's trustworthy. 
And when he's trustworthy, we practice his way of life. We practice the way of Jesus. And as we practice the way of Jesus, we talked last week about how we will then be a preview of his coming reign. That Jesus is one day going to reign on earth as it is in heaven. And so he will be king here and life will actually be as it was meant to be. But he's given us a job until then, to be a preview, just like a movie trailer or a movie preview. And sometimes you see that, that movie trailer or, or movie preview and you go, oh, I can't wait to see that movie. When does it come out? And other times it looks awful and you go, I am never going to see that movie. I don't know why anyone would. And the both fortunate, fortunate and unfortunate reality for us as the church is that we as Christians, we as the church, sometimes are a good preview by the way we live and and love and speak and handle ourselves and our resources. Some people look at our lives and go, I can't wait until Jesus comes again. I want to be a part of that kingdom. We draw them to him. But other times we've been a, a really poor preview and people look at our lives and our lack of love and how we are stingy maybe with our resources and self-focused and go, why would I want anything to do with that Jesus? Sometimes we're a pretty bad preview of the coming reign of Jesus, of who our God is. I, uh, I taught out of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount last week. And, and in that passage, Jesus tells the church, his disciples, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, meaning through you, the world is going to know me. You're going to be a preview. And I shared how growing up, I never really understood the whole salt thing. We use salt almost exclusively. There's some other uses, but primarily to flavor our food. But in, in the ancient world, in Jesus' time and before, in the Old Testament, salt had a lot of different uses that we don't use it for today. And so we kind of broke down some categories of what Jesus meant. In that time, salt was used as a, a preserver, a purifier, and an enhancer. So salt would be used to keep food good. It was used in offerings and sacrifices and religious traditions. God would demand that salt would be used with it to purify and make an offering or a sacrifice good in his eyes. It would enhance the good in the world, and that's what we were to be, salt. But one of the things salt also did in the ancient world is when one nation would attack and destroy another, they would spread salt around the land so that nothing could grow. So not only would that nation... <clears throat> excuse me, those people be destroyed in that moment, but since nothing could grow, the land would be worthless for years and years and years. So salt can be really good or really bad. In the same way, we can be a really good or a really bad preview. And, and I, I talked about a couple of the ways that we've been a bad preview as a church. I'm gonna share those again too. Fairly extreme, but I think they're just true examples. The first was our nation's history with slavery. We talked about how Christian, quote-unquote Christian people in the name of Jesus used and abused and, and, and raped and did horrendous things to slaves. And then in the name of Jesus would present them with the Bible, but they would edit the Bible first to take out any connotations of freedom, which are pretty key to who Jesus is. And so in the name of Jesus, slaves would say or receive a Bible and go, hey, you, you also need Jesus, by the way. It's a terrible preview. Why would anyone want anything to do with that Jesus, right? And we kind of swung the pendulum and said, what about just in the common moments of our lives today and in our cultural moments? And we talked about tipping. Now, of all people groups, Christians are probably known as the worst tippers. And it's a little funny, but you also think, what does it communicate? 
Christians are stingy, self-focused, not generous, don't care. That's not good either. If, if I were to ask you the question, what are the, the two words, the two things that come to mind when people think of Christians? I'm guessing there's two things that come to mind. One would be hypocrite, and the other would be judgmental. Those are probably the two things the church is known as most. And I'm going to make kind of a, a crazy statement here. Hang with me, though. I think it's, I think it's true. The, the fact that we sin, that we do wrong, that we harm others, that we're selfish, that we make mistakes, I actually don't think those actions in and of themselves are the reason we are known as hypocrites and judgmental. I actually think the reason that we are known as hypocrites and judgmental is that we don't confess and repent from the mistakes we make. Process this for a moment. Everybody that's in this room this morning, all of us in here, we share one thing in common. We know we're messed up. Like that's why we walked into these doors because we know we need Jesus. But as church, like this is the place we as the church gather, and this gathering place, is that what people feel? Do people feel comfortable being themselves? No. That's why we have this, this thing called church clothes. I don't wear them, and most of you don't either. We're kind of past that. But we still have a front we put on. We have this really weird thing. I don't know how it happened. I actually think it's because Satan's brilliant and he gets in the midst of churches where we, became, we become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and then we think instantly we need to pretend we have it all together. There's no more sin. We don't mess up. We're perfect. We can't let anybody know about what happens behind the doors. Like when we go to church, let's, let's make sure we look right. Kids, be on your best behavior. Like that's, that's actually the opposite of the gospel all in here because we know we're messed up. So why do we pretend something different? Of all places, of all gatherings and moments with one another is where we should have nothing to prove and nobody to impress because we're all here for the same reason. But that's not what happens. That's not actually how we function. So this morning as you walked in through those doors, maybe, maybe you've been a person that's experienced, been given, unfortunately provided with a, a, a horrendous preview of Jesus. That, that's true of some of you, I have no doubt. In the name of Jesus, people have wronged you, abused you, done terrible things, painted a projection of who God is and what his world is like that you probably want nothing to, to do with. Maybe it was really brutally challenging to come into this place this morning for that reason. I'm so I'm sorry. That's not who Jesus is. Don't let those bad previews affect you because Jesus is perfect and loving and faithful and everything we need, even when we mess that up. And, and to some degree, each of us have actually been the giver of an unfortunate, faulty, inaccurate preview of the reign of Jesus. Like, we all need to own that to a degree. And today is not about a guilt trip. It's not a day to sulk in sorrow. I think it is a day, a moment, a morning to invite the Spirit to open our eyes, a moment for us to repent and to look at what we can actually do about this. And so that's what we're going to discuss out of Matthew chapter 3. Um, I'm going to read out of uh, verses 1 through 11. Jesus hasn't started his ministry yet at this point. 
there's actually been 400 years of silence. And so the, the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah, for a Savior to come, and they've heard nothing from a prophet or anybody. They don't know what, where God has gone or what he's doing. Sometimes we experience those seasons. And then this guy, John the Baptist, shows up, and they believe that he's a prophet, that he's speaking truth from God. And, and here's what they hear from him. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. John himself had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This little description is included because it was similar to that of the prophet Elijah. And so through this, we know that he's speaking out of the same tradition. He is God's prophet. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the, Jor of the Jordan River were flocking to him. It's interesting language. They didn't like slowly come to him from just one little town or village or location. They flock to John the Baptist because they've been starved. They've been in a drought of hearing from God. And so they're longing to hear from him. They, they hear that this John the Baptist prophet who's teaching might be someone who's speaking on behalf of God, and they flock to him. And then listen to what happens. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they what? Confessed their sins. Here's what's happening. People from all these different towns and cities and regions are flocking to this dirty, muddy river to be dunked in the water, and they're confessing their sins. And you know what's happening in that moment? They're actually making a statement. They're saying the world, our world, is not as it's meant to be. There's things that are happening in my life and yours and all around us that are broken, that are not as God, is, not as God intended and that need fixing. And they're confessing to tell themselves, their family members, their loved ones, their, their enemies, everybody, it's not going to continue to be this way. John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, meaning heaven and earth are going to collide. It will be heaven on earth when Jesus reigns. That's what the, the kingdom of heaven is near means. Heaven is going to come down. Heaven is about proximity to Jesus. It's not a place. Heaven is going to come down when Jesus reigns. Heaven is near. So repent, so they confess. And in that moment, they're actually an effective preview by communicating what won't be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. We continue to, to read in the next verse, verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, anytime you, you see this coupling of people groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, you can just think religious and political leaders. That's what they are. When he saw many of the religious and political leaders of the day coming to the place of his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Does John sound angry there? I don't know when the last time he called someone a snake was, but that's what he's doing. And, and he actually is angry. Throughout this series, we've discussed how God tells us, God himself says that he is a God who is slow to anger, which means he does get angry sometimes, but he's incredibly patient and forgiving. He's going to wait and wait and wait and wait. But 
finally, the moments he gets angry are the moments when people are hurting people or when people are painting a poor picture of him so that others will want nothing to do with him. When that happens, God actually gets angry. And so on behalf of God, as a prophet, he's speaking uh, on behalf of God, John the Baptist gets angry. He says, you brood of vipers. He calls them, a, he calls them snakes. And he's making a, a, a picture connection to Genesis when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. He says, you deceivers, you snakes, I know what you're doing. You're being a terrible preview of the way of Jesus because they had authority and power politically and religiously through their positions. And they abused and manipulated and did a lot of harm in the name of Yahweh God. So it wouldn't be surprising when people didn't want anything to do with this God. Maybe they felt like they had to have something to do with this God because they don't want to go to hell. <laughs> Maybe some of you have experienced that. I don't, I don't think I really want anything to do with this God, but I'd rather have something to do with this God than go to hell. And it happens. That's the picture that these Pharisees and Sadducees paint. And God got angry. I want to go back to, to verse 2. Here's the message John gave to everybody. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Just one chapter later, Jesus has started his ministry. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Here's what Jesus says, or what we read. From then on, meaning this wasn't a one-time thing, but again and again and again and again, every time, this is going to be the message Jesus preaches. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heaven has drawn in proximity because Jesus is there and he's going to reign as king. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning breaking that down. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What, what does repentance look like? I'm going to break repentance down into two steps. We could do more, but that's the simplest way to, to look at it. And so step one of repentance is confession. Repentance and confession are not synonymous. They're two different things. Confession's the first step in the process of repentance. The second step is returning to God's intent, and we'll talk about that in a second. First, though, here's how I would define confession. It's an acknowledgement that this, meaning the thing that I did that's not right, is not the way it should be, accompanied by grief and sorrow. There's, there's two key parts to that. It's an acknowledgement and an out loud proclamation that what I did is not in line with God's intent. This is not human the way God intended it to be. And it has to be accompanied by sincere and genuine sorrow. It's not okay and I'm sorry I did this. That's what confession is. Joanne Jung uh, wrote this definition of confession that I think is also helpful. Confession is that point when my mouth gives voice to what my heart knows to be true about my sin, no matter what the reason or cause and without excuse. Genuine confession and repentance allow the soul to be most receptive to abundant, divine, life-transforming forgiveness. So a question we have to ask is, why do we confess? Why should we? And, and the first reason is actually just selfish because it's in our own best interest to not confess is to, to recognize that Jesus is there standing and at our door knocking saying, I want to come in and help you and save you and restore your brokenness to beautiful. And just saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm not interested. I'm going to keep the door locked. Like until we confess and say, I need help, Jesus isn't going to heal. He's not going to do something in that moment that we don't want him to do. 
He gives us some freedom and choice. This makes confession really crucial. Proverbs 28, 13 puts it this way. The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. The first reason we confess is actually for ourselves, and that's okay. Otherwise, we're saying we're keeping Jesus at arm's length and not allowing him to work in our lives. The second reason is because it's a preview. By what we confess... When we say this is not the way it's meant to be, people get an understanding of what heaven will actually look like. It won't include the action you just experienced from me, and that's actually good news. Second step in repentance is this idea of returning. I would define a, the return in this way. It's practicing the way it was meant to be. So if the first part is confession, I'm saying this is not how it was to be. Whatever area of life I, I walked outside of God's intent in, the second part is practicing. Notice the word there is not perfecting. Practicing, it's a slow process. We don't just teleport from being messed up to being perfect. It doesn't work that way. We practice the way it was meant to be, asking what is God's intent for this part of humanity, and then we just move in that direction. It's not instantaneous. It's not going to just happen at the snap of a finger, but God will lead us in that way over time. The, the word repentance literally means to return. It's like a round-trip flight. You're going the wrong way, and you go, I'm going back to God's intent. There's a 180-degree switch. This is why confession is not enough. Confession in and of itself is actually pretty worthless. Repentance is confessing, here's this awareness, this sorrow, and then returning to what God's intent in that area of life is. Let's look at verse 11. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. Jesus is going to reign as king. Last week we talked about how when we get it right, when we have marriages filled with faithfulness and, and love and, and sacrifice and giving, that presents a preview of the reign of Jesus. When we are generous and hospitable, faithful and forgiving, when we do good, that's going to look like, that's going to give a glimpse of the coming reign of Jesus, and so people will have a good, healthy preview. But as I, I drove home after last Sunday, there was just something in my mind that I, I couldn't shake, and it was, I, I think the voice of the Spirit saying, like, you missed something, or maybe more so you needed to add something. And that something was confession and repentance. And I actually think what's maybe more powerful than when we get it right is when we get it wrong and we acknowledge it, we confess to people and we repent of it. The, the reason is because nobody does that. That doesn't happen. We, we try to pretend culturally that we have it all together. But have you ever, ever actually experienced when somebody's confessed and repented? It's powerful. Almost always, genuine repentance is going to be met with forgiveness and love. I very intentionally used the, the word almost, though, because there's going to be times where it won't be. 
There's going to be times, certainly, when reconciliation won't happen. Almost always, genuine repentance will be met with forgiveness and love. But always, it will be a powerful statement. Even if reconciliation doesn't happen, even if that person isn't able to forgive in that moment, it still will be a powerful preview of the coming reign of Jesus, and it's what we're called to do. I think we need to think of our, our sin. It's not a, not a list of rules. It doesn't function that way. And for clarity, that's not at all what the Bible is. Sin is recognizing that we have a creator and he's perfect. And he said, here's a way of life that's good for you and everyone around you. Sin is simply living life differently, which is bad for us, bad for everybody. And as we think of our sin, we need to think of repenting both from the, the high quality sins, I'll call them, Major things in life, they're significant. Those are obvious. But just as important are the high quantity ones. It might seem insignificant, a little lie, a little gossip, a little slander, a little selfishness. But if you think about the context of a marriage over a year, two, five, 10, 15, 30, like eventually enough of me over you, me over you, me over you, and, and unrepentiveness in that context, it's actually going to be pretty damaging. Maybe more so than the big thing. So we need to have awareness both of the quality and quantity when we walk away from who Jesus is and from his way of life. <coughs> Whoops. I think perhaps the most powerful preview of the coming reign of Jesus we can give people when we simply say, what you have seen in me, what you have seen and experienced in who I am and what I've done is not the way it's meant to be. And I'm committed to giving Jesus space to help me become human the way he's made me to be. I think that might be the most powerful preview we can give. Even more powerful than doing things right is when we just own up to who we are. Because that's what we have in common anyway. I want to give you a little formula for repentance. Maybe you've never repented of anything in your life, and, and that's okay. This is not like the way to do it, but it's just kind of a, a list of four steps that maybe you'll find helpful. And really, it's a statement. It's a proclamation that comes in four parts. And so the first step, I think, or, or statement in repentance is this. What I did, so the thing you've done that's not okay, that's not right, and the Spirit will convict you of it, that's the first step. You're proclaiming what I did. And you should be as specific as possible. And here's why. If you're on the other end, if you're the one who's going to be offering forgiveness, it really helps if you know that the person who's repenting and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation really understands what they did wrong. So if you're communicating, I really know in detail that what I did is not okay, it's going to be helpful for the relationship. So step one is conveying what I did and being specific with it. Step two just saying that this is not the way it should be. So in that moment, we're actually telling them the story of God. That God is coming again, that things are not the way they should be, but that one day they will be. What I did is not the way it should be. Step three, saying I'm sorry. This might be the most important part. And if you're, you're not actually genuinely sorry, if there's not sincerity in this, I would advise you to not confess and repent because it's actually going to do more damage than good at that point. So you have to really work on your heart. And confession when you're caught in something also is not healthy. 
It's why there needs to be time for a, a sincerity and, and genuineness in it. But the I am sorry, it's why we define confession the way we did, it's an acknowledgement with sorrow is key. The last step. It's gonna seem long, but there's some pretty intentional wording in this. I am committed to giving Jesus space in my life to help me be human the way I was made to be in this area. Whatever area, area I walk outside of God's intent. Here's why this is worded that way. Because the, the person that we're confessing to, that's key, you confess to somebody, they probably don't have a lot of faith in you at that point. They're probably not super trusting and probably for good reason. And, and so when we phrase it this way, we're not asking them to put their trust in us. We're asking them to place their trust in the name of Jesus. And what we're committing to is not fixing ourselves because we can't. We're committing to giving Jesus space and authority in our lives to help us become human the way we were made to be. That's different. That's different than just saying, I won't do this again because you might. might not be honest. But it's saying, I am committed to putting in the work and to giving Jesus the time to work in my life. Because he's trustworthy even when I'm not. Here's a few examples. I think the easiest comes when I, I think about my kids. I've got three, six and under. And as I've told you, I like to refer to it as beautiful chaos. They're beautiful and they cause a lot of chaos. And they do a lot of really stupid things sometimes. You can come home and there's all kinds of drawings and new artwork that's hideous on the walls. And you go, hey, this doesn't match our aesthetic. I'm not cool with this. Or after like the 27th million time of saying we don't do that and it happens, sometimes I get kind of angry <clears throat> and I'll yell. I accidentally last service said I throw them in their room and I didn't mean like physically throw them in the room. I just say go to your room, right? But in that moment, by processing how we've talked about who the father is, who God is, he's slow to anger. And he actually only gets angry when people are harming people. And so if they hurt one another, I'll say that. I will get angry. But if I just wasn't patient after, I have to recognize that my kids are probably going to look at me as their father and see a picture of the heavenly father. That's a terrifying responsibility. Like if that doesn't get you on your knees praying, I don't know what will. But when I mess up, it's so critical that I confess and repent. And so I'll, I'll come up to one of the kids and say, baby girl, we need to talk about something. What I did, how I spoke to you, the, the, the way my voice sounded as I was angry with you, that wasn't okay. And that doesn't mean I'm not saying what you did was okay. Like, that was not okay either. And that's okay. We're going to talk through this. But the way I handled the situation wasn't good. That's not how God is. God told me to be slow to anger. And I was quick to get angry. What I did is not okay, and I'm sorry. And I want Jesus to help me be the daddy I need to be. And so can we work together on these issues, what we talked about, and daddy having the right heart in these moments, and let Jesus help us be who he's made us to be. It's like 20 seconds. I don't always do it. Oftentimes I don't. But I hope I do it enough so that they can look at me and know God's not like him. Like daddy's messed up. But at least he's somewhat aware of it and says that Jesus isn't. That's what matters. And those moments are repentance. Our confession and returning are a healthy preview because we're not perfect. Here's the thing. If you actually repent, this might sound really shocking, you're not going to surprise anybody with what you tell them. 
Like, they know you're not perfect. Even if it's some hidden secret that's really dark, and you're, maybe you're going to surprise them. Probably not, though, after the shock. Like, we all know we're all messed up. What you will surprise them with is the humility and vulnerability and love to confess and repent. I promise that will make a difference. To be with your spouse and how you prioritize things, coworkers, gossip, slander, anything. If you wonder, when am I called to confess, to repent, to return? I think the easiest way to think about it is anytime you've been a poor preview, an inaccurate preview of what Jesus is like and what life will be like when heaven and earth collide, that's the time to confess and repent because we want to be an effective preview of the reign of Jesus. Let me, let me close our time together with John uh, chapter 1, verse 29. This is just one day after John the Baptist is baptizing people and saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about this for a second. Jesus has not died on a cross yet. He's not sacrificed himself. But he's saying, here is the Lamb of God. God himself is coming to be the sacrifice. He's foreshadowing this because it won't be too long before Jesus is hanging on a cross, giving up his life for us. He is the sacrifice that pays the price for our sins so that we are forgiven and eventually will be with him when he reigns on earth and it is heaven. See, here is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Meaning, the, sin will not, or the world will not be filled with sin, with brokenness and abuse and, and pain and hurt and racism and violence and everything disgusting and disturbing in our world. It's a reality. The brokenness will be gone because the lamb is taking away the sins of the world. John's saying, here he is. When we confess, when we repent, when we return, when we look somebody in the eye that we've wronged and we say, what you've seen in me is not okay and I'm sorry. And there will be a day when that type of action doesn't happen. There will be a day when that's not who I will be because Jesus will have restored me in this world to its original intent. What we communicate to those people in this, those moments is this, that the Lamb of God has come, he's paid the price on the cross, and he's going to restore all brokenness to beautiful one day soon. When you confess, when we repent, that might be the most powerful preview we ever get. What it actually does is point to Jesus, not us. And each of us are in this room because we know we desperately need you. And we know that everyone outside of these walls, our family members, our friends, desperately need Jesus as well. May we be a people bold enough to embrace repentance because the love of Jesus is so much greater than our sin. And the world needs the preview that he's coming again soon. Jesus, we thank you for your endless love, for who you are and that you're coming again. God, I pray that you give myself and everyone in this room the courage, the boldness by your spirit to be a people that confess, that repent, that say what, what you've seen in me is not okay. It's not the way it's going to be. May we be an effective preview. Holy Spirit, may you uh, convict us of our sin of our issues, of our brokenness, and guide us in the everyday stuff of life to point people to you. Overwhelm us with your love. Lead us in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new with
Restoration Church, we uh, continue to worship in our response, and, and we respond in uh, a few different ways. One of the ways is through giving, and so there's, there's two boxes for giving in the back of the room or instructions on, on how to give online in the, the chair in front of you, a little brown card. The reason that we give is actually to align our hearts with God's. When we give, and the amount doesn't matter, it should be a heart issue, a heart matter. The reason we give is to align our hearts with God. We say, everything is yours, Father. And so we give enough to go, this included. Because oftentimes we want to compartmentalize our following of Jesus and say, hey, I'll follow you here, but not with this. And I'll follow you when I'm doing this, but not when I'm doing that. And he says, no, to call me Savior is to call me Lord. And that means Lord of all. So part of the ways we worship is giving. But the primary way that we want to respond and worship is through communion. Because when we take communion, and you can do this individually or with your family or your community, and you, you take the bread and you dip it into the cup, we remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he allowed his body to die. That he rose three days later, paying the price for our sin. And so there's hope only part of it. We also recognize that by the power of the Spirit, we are now united with Christ, that Jesus himself is with you. And so as you take in the body and blood, you know that wherever you go, Jesus is with you. And so he will be the preview for you. The Spirit will convict you of your sin and lead you to confess and to repent and to be who you were made to be in this world. And so our response actually isn't us doing better or us not doing bad, our response is coming to the table and knowing that Jesus will do the work in us. We just have to open the door and say, I need your help, Jesus, and communion's how we do that. And so during the next song, feel free to come up to one of these two stations and to take communion, but let's continue to worship now in our response.